0: I really feel optimistic about the future because of technologies, because of the ability. I think that we will have a more sustainable, beautiful planet if we can migrate and adopt all of these technologies and basically migrate away from the technologies that the first coal power plant was in 1883, which was the Edison in London, followed by like 1885, I think it was the first combustion engine automobile. That was a huge technology at the time. We now know it's terrible for our planet, migrate away from that, but we just have to constantly progress and get better. But right now it's about accelerating that and getting to a much cleaner planet as quickly as possible. Because if we don't, we will get to a point where we are at a point of no return. And we're right now At that point, I think if we can't make decisions and as a planet come together to get away from the fossil fuel era and get into a renewably powered era, which is infinitely better for our planet, then we're kind of shit's creek without a paddle type of thing. And so it's a scary time
1: right now. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so that together we can build that better world. Today, we're going to visit two topics that are near and dear to my heart, great wine and regenerative farming as I introduce you to a giant of both worlds, Carlo Mandavi. Carlo Mandavi is a fourth-generation farmer, wine grower, and grandson of the legendary Robert Mandavi. He is also the co-founder and chief farming officer of Monarch Tractor. This is the world's first fully electric, autonomous tractor, if you can picture that. The Monarch Tractor offers a trifecta of electrification, automation, and data analysis, resulting in maximum value from a farmer's perspective. This helps them cut their carbon footprint, improve field safety, streamline farming operations, and increase their bottom lines. Now, I got the opportunity to meet Carlo in person at a press event that they hosted last week as I'm recording the show. Carlo Mondavi, welcome to the show. Hey,
0: Karina, how are you? Good to be here.
1: Yeah, so good to see you again. I mean, I had the rare opportunity to be in person with you just, gosh, was it last week already? It rained so much between it feels like an eon has passed.
0: Yeah, we got two very, very much needed things for our planet or for certainly California that day. We got those rains, which was just those incredible, incredible rains, which this year we're in our third consecutive dryish year since 1896. And then on top of that, we were able to deliver Monarch Tractor to our first customer, which was very exciting, which means that... um, Yeah, we'll be migrating away from the fossil fuel era of farming into the regenerative renewable era of farming, which is very exciting. So thanks again for making it in the rain.
1: Yeah, I have to tell you, though, the strength of the last couple of storms that passed through my area had me thinking back to the CZU fire lightning complex or the lightning complex that hit here in Santa Cruz County because it was just so windy and so much downpour that I was brought back to that incredible thunderstorm that resulted in me being evacuated from my home for 10 days, fire loss in our local habitat, entire forest burning down. And I know this is something that you've also been through in wine country. So I wanted to kind of start here and just talk about the need for us to address not only farming equipment, but what's really happening with the climate crisis and how it's impacting wine growing and farming in California.
0: Yeah, uh, well, this extreme weather has been terrifying. I think right now what we're seeing from a farming perspective and just my wife makes wine in Italy. So we've seen just different climate, but climate in excess, all sorts of just when it's dry, it's extremely dry. The winds are extremely strong when it's windy. And so what we've seen, hail, for example, hail has been in Italy and Europe and these wine regions for hundreds of years, but now the size of the hail is much more severe. So climate change is really starting to rear its ugly head. And it's terrifying. The 2017 wildfires were just, it was so surreal. I literally thought it was arson when it happened. Just how can you have so many fires in so many places at one time so quickly? It was so dry. It was so hot. It was so windy. It just seemed like if you were an arson, that that would be the time to go out and just light fires. But it wasn't. turned out it was not arson, that it was A whole bunch of things coming together to create just one of the most unbelievable and terrifying wildfires. And thought that was kind of like a once in a lifetime experience. That this was something that okay, that year is behind us for sure. More severe because of climate change. The weather was for sure more difficult. But that won't happen again. Then in 2020, the well, actually no, 2017 was was the wildfires that happened. Then 2018, they weren't in Napa and Sonoma, but they were nearby. 2019, they came back again. And then 2020, they came right back to Napa, Sonoma, and this whole area. And those wildfires were much earlier, just as tragic, just as severe, if not more.
1: Well, and even when the vines don't get impacted, the wine is undrinkable because the grapes end up having this really smoky hit to them. You just can't use them.
0: Smoke taint something that I think the world is just starting to understand. I mean, this year, for the first time, there was wildfires in Bordeaux, in France, where they get a significant amount of rain each year. So that just shows you how fast how dry the weather is in the in between on these drought years or in australia so the data is just coming around on kind of for aguiacol and what smoke tape means it doesn't mean that they're undrinkable but they have been changed because you have this wax on the outside of a grape that collects the kind of what we call the microflora so that's like the resin from the flowers the grasses the trees everything that we breathe those plants are essentially in the environment breathing that and it sticks to this wax and creates the bloom and that bloom ends up as a part of the wine and so smoke taint which actually is interesting in wine barrels they char the inside of barrels and in that is for the guayacol, which is a compound that it's not wanted it's not needed in barrels that's a different story that's something that's a part of kind of seasoning the barrel in the vineyard it's something that is not desired because it's erasing the beautiful notes of the flowers and the trees and the environment in which the wines grew and so it's not that it's not drinkable it definitely alters it so a lot of families during these tragic fires have just decided to discard the wine the other side of it is that during these fires it's impossible to get crews to go pick it's too dangerous Just flat out, it's smoky. It's bad to breathe. In many instances, the fires are surrounding the vineyard. So harvest is essentially abandoned. And by the time people can get back in, they've lost that entire crop. So it's a combination of either crop loss due to not being able to harvest at the right time or crop loss due to quality and uh, people feeling that the, the smoke kind of inhibited its value, if you will.
1: Yeah. And that's up to the individual wineries to make those judgment calls. Now, I've been aware of the Mondavi family and drinking wines with that label since really right after I was 21 years old. And this is kind of opening that door. I wanted to connect on this topic because we're talking about grape growing in one arena. And I think many people think Napa. They obviously think Napa for wines. They might think Santa Barbara, but they actually might not know that one of the largest grape growing regions is along the 101 corridor, like between Monterey and San Luis Obispo. I actually did an archaeology dig in college there at Mission San Antonio de Padua. And because I was there, and I guess Cal Poly, some of the professors knew some people at Mondavi, they hosted a wine tasting at the dig. (laughs) And this is back in 1997. So when your family still ran it, and they brought out a sommelier who did a tasting with us, including, I believe it was a Frangelico. It was some sort of a fortified wine that I had no idea that you guys produced, but you were just kind of tasting it, testing it at that time, deciding whether to launch. So I got to learn a little bit about the Mondavi history in this area and how long you'd been involved in winemaking. And since then, have really followed A lot of what the family has done and how that has changed how we look at wines on a global scale. Even some winemakers choosing to source grapes from other regions around the world and create blends that can help them get over hurdles like this moment when you've lost your entire crop. So I understand that this has kind of changed the entire business of (laughs) winemaking over the course of the last few years because. If you have something catastrophic like this happen, I mean, it might have been something where in the past a winery would say, oh, well, we just don't do that. It wouldn't be synonymous with our brand. But they might actually be in a point where they have to make a judgment call because they'll have no crop, they'll have no wine for that vintage at all. So what do you think that this is doing to change the business of winemaking in Napa?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing right now is for sure there's a little... That we need to do during the growing season to adjust, like our canopy to deal with hotter summers and drier weather, the vine row spacing, the direction, all these little things that we do kind of that are micro adjusting to the weather. That's something that farmers do. We in farming, I think the greatest way to describe a farmer is how quickly we can react and how accurately we can react to what's happening. The biggest thing, though, I think is that we need to come to climate stability because our small reactions are getting us through each year. But if we don't react to the bigger picture of what's happening on a global basis to our planet, then those small reactions will be meaningless because of the weather that's coming at us is so severe that it's impossible to continue to farm or really basically have a planet that is inhabitable to the beautiful biodiversity that's here right now. And so that's where, for me, the whole idea like getting away from fossil fuel farming, getting into renewable farming, there's another big piece of the pie and that is the chemicals that we use in agriculture today are incredibly carbon intensive in terms of they're really energy intensive to create. They're really bad for our soils. They're really bad for our planet's biodiversity. And they're really bad for us.
1: And they get on the skins of the grapes and may not all wash away. I mean, if we're speaking about wine, but really it applies to all foods, right? Because they do spray chemicals and some of those residues rest on the plants or end up in the soil. And it doesn't all just wash away when you. Rinse it, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think that's like the overall picture of what agriculture means to our planet. It's like greater than 20% of our planet's carbon footprint. It inhabits.
1: Isn't it second only to industry?
0: Yeah, it's really more like 30%, but I always try to say really conservative numbers. Like, There's like a 9 to 13.
1: Then you're including things like transport and also the tractors, right? The emissions that they produce and things along those lines.
0: Yeah, that's a huge piece of it. And tractors are diesel, so it's NOx particulate and CO2, so they're particularly dirty. But no, it's a huge amount of our planet's carbon footprint. Then on top of it, agriculture covers greater than 50% of our planet's inhabitable land and uses 70% of our planet's water resources from a freshwater resource perspective. And so when you look at that, you see just whatever we do on our farms, because it covers so much vastness of our landscape, it ends up in our waterways, it ends up in our air, it ends up on our plate at dinner. So farmers are really the most, as farmers, we are the most, I think, important people on our planet. And and back in 1900, half of the United States was in agriculture, half the United States was farmers. Now it's 1.8%. And so it's this, moment where we really as that kind of 1.8% have to change the way that we're farming so that we can protect our planet so that we can continue to farm in it and one thing that I love about farming is that when you talk to the most conservative conventional farmer or the most kind of organic biodynamic permaculture farmer and every farmer in between they all care deeply about our planet they all want to make a difference they all care about their families and their dirt and so When the conversation is presented about making our planet better to them, they all want to do it. Then comes the problem of the economics. And this is something when I began the Monarch Challenge was hit with, which was that farming in a clean way before Monarch Tractor was economically, it was impossible. It was so much more expensive to farm in a more elegant, symbiotic way to mother nature than it was just to spray conventional, systemic, synthetic chemicals.
1: And making the transition from a more chemically, let's just say, traditional agriculture perspective, and then moving to a more regenerative practice, it can take a bit for you to start to realize the benefits of making that shift. But that also (laughs) is an investment, just like any business. And it may be a leap of faith in some ways that these farmers are having to take, but they can see demonstrated successes at other farms taking hold, like they might require less water. Each plant that they produce might actually grow more fruit or produce more food if they space them a little differently, and if they feed them water a little differently, and if they use different chemicals in the soil. So I know that this is a complex issue. I've seen this tractor in person. (laughs) And I have to say, it was quite an experience to understand that the tractor could have its plotted course that it was going to take, and then also have somebody stand in front of it and with a few hand signals, ask it to pause or shift its direction (laughs) or do really... Anything to make it a functional tool in a way that I wouldn't have imagined before for something like a tractor. And so I really was hoping that as we dig into the subject and as people understand things like particulate matter from a tractor which burns diesel, and I mean, its miles per gallon are going to be very low because it's doing heavy work. So you're burning a lot of diesel now, you're not.
0: And it's super efficient to efficient. diesel is like 20% efficient. It's so inefficient in terms of its ability to convert to energy for. The use of like a diesel engine.
1: That's why we get all that super particulate black smoke because there's unburned elements within that too, correct?
0: And you have to burn a significant amount of diesel to get that work done versus something like an electric engine, which is more like 90 to 95% efficient. So it's just, if you were to take, I think it's so much more efficient electric energy, twice the torque comparatively to diesel. But ultimately, even if it was less efficient, Like diesel is, you're taking 300 million year old sunlight, that energy that grew plants that then were buried and became what we know as fossil fuel. You're taking that 300 million year old carbon, digging it out and you're burning it and adding it to our carbon total. Our saturated air is right now with greenhouse gases. It's just not a path forward. So even if it was less efficient to go electric in terms of just like putting the foot on the throttle and accelerating ahead, it would still be the right direction to go. But the fact of the matter is that it's significantly more efficient. So the magnitude of like 90% efficient versus diesel being like 20% efficient. It's diesel engines being 20% efficient. It's just crazy. And there's also a misnomer, I think, that people oftentimes think, well, if you're hooking your electric tractor or your electric car up to a coal power plant, that you're not helping the planet. It's true. Renewable farming, using renewable energy to farm is going to be significantly more beneficial than coal, but coal is actually more efficient than diesel tractors because they're 60% efficient in converting energy versus 20% efficient on diesel and all the refining and all that. So yes, it's not ideal to use coal. That's definitely something we have to get away from. And I'm super excited today that announced this new fusion nuclear kind of ability to create an even more resourceful and efficient energy. But like whether it's nuclear, wind, geothermal, or hydro or solar, we have to get away from the burning hydrocarbons, including coal, just to show you how efficient Electric is compared to diesel. It's just like a magnitude of order greater.
1: Right. Well, our listeners may remember this too from a subject on clean cooking that we covered as we introduced our audience to this concept with ATEC, which is a company that makes clean cooking stoves that are usable in rural environments where you can actually take cow dung, as a for example, which releases methane and burn that for fuel. And yes, you produce some carbon from that. But if you want to talk lesser of evils, methane to CO2 are vastly different. And so they're able to clean up their cooking, reduce their incidence of things like cancer because they were cooking using dirty fuel before and ending up inhaling a lot of smoke. The smoke leads to things like carcinogenic outcomes and other health states of disease. And so we're looking at solutions all over the globe that can help us get here to where the carbon equivalent is reduced i mean we're at how many parts per million at this point
0: we're just over 420 parts per million of co2
1: i remember that from your presentation last week i felt like i was watching an inconvenient truth with al gore as you shared those graphs
0: you know if you want a really interesting like moment it's watch inconvenient truth now today because al gore basically put that i think was 2004 and we're almost 20 years later and everything is said is happening and it couldn't be more contemporary than it is today it's terrifying i think like it's easy to get into climate fear of just what's happening and with the chaos and all that but i really feel optimistic about the future because of technologies because of the ability i think that we will have a more sustainable beautiful planet if we can migrate and adopt all of these technologies and basically migrate away from the technologies that the first coal power plant was in 1883, which was the Edison in London, followed by like 1885, I think it was the first combustion engine automobile. That was a huge technology at the time. We now know it's terrible for our planet, migrate away from that. But we just have to constantly progress and get better. But right now, it's about accelerating that and getting to a much cleaner planet as quickly as possible. Because if we don't, We will get to a point where we are at a point of no return. And we're right now at that point. I think if we can't make decisions and as a planet come together to get away from the fossil fuel era and get into a renewably powered era, which is infinitely better for our planet, then we're kind of shit's creek without a paddle type of thing. And so it's a scary time right now.
1: So let's talk for a moment about that because I think most people get a basic understanding of what regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture are. It's essentially utilizing nature's ability to resolve the challenges that we face, to regenerate, to utilize less toxic resources and perhaps eliminate them, while at the same time also working with the natural ecosystems, with how plants actually grow together, that they aren't... That we don't really live in a, a monocrop world. And the world of farming for wine, you are will commonly see something like rose bushes at the edge of each row of grapes. This was to reduce pest and infiltration onto the grapes. But you also have this kind of need to look at things like cover crops that can work in concert with the environment that you're growing in and moving in a new direction. So how long? Do you think that some concept like this, like regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming, making more with less, working with nature as opposed to against it, how long will that take to become mainstream? How close are we? Are we at the tipping point?
0: I think right now, when you look at agriculture and why the chemical industry has been so successful is because of education. A lot of my friends, when we graduated school, they got thrown the tractor keys and like the kind of keys to the farm, if you will, from their family (laughs) and their kind of formal education stopped at high school. And they didn't go on to college and in walks a phd from a chemical company you name it and now their formal education begins from that perspective and now they're learning how to farm in that realm and the reason why that has been so successful is because it was such a profiter 200 billion dollars in pesticides each year being sold and 100 million tons of, of fertilizer and so there was so much money and there was just a whole team of people educating both working with universities and working with individual farms that that was where the education kind of direction was. And that's where farmers began to adopt. And then even from like lobbying with insurance companies to say, hey, if you want insurance, you have to use these chemicals. It's been honestly a mess. And so now it's about education. This is one of the things that I'm really excited about with Monarch Tractor. Because we are electric, we're driver optional, we're smart, we're connected, all those things. Now there's this huge data piece, right? That because it's a vision stack like Tesla, you get down Vineyard Road autonomously, and it's capturing an incredible amount of data. Now you can take that data and we have these, uh, it's an open app system similar to like the Apple platform. So people can develop apps and put it onto the tractor, whether it's implement companies or any kind of third party. And then farmers can decide if they wanna share that data with the technology and then they can get insights and so this begins the journey of being able to have a higher level of education in terms of just anyone being able to go out there and have access the data that they want to access on the regenerative organic biodynamic permaculture kind of that whole realm i think that it's it's going to happen fairly quickly by that i think that it needs to happen within the next like let's say by 2030 like eight years but It's incredible because of the social dynamics, because of podcasts like your podcast, Karina, and because of the ability to communicate and how connected we are. I think there is the opportunity for it to happen quickly. And because there now is a platform, which Monarch enables for farmers to go into the beyond organic realm and save money, more money than they would save on, for example, conventionally farming. Just to like give an example of that. If you have, you know, I have a friend who has 4,500 acres in Lodi. And each year he spends about $500 per acre just to buy glyphosate, a herbicide, $500. So that's about $2.25 million a year that he pays for a chemical.
1: That ends up in the water tables too. I mean, I look down because it's just like, oh, it's terrible. Yes.
0: And so that chemical is essentially mowing the field versus being able to mow the field with an implement like a mower and a tractor. So by being able to be electric and autonomous, now you can go out and mow as often as you want, and you can bridge the economic divide, and then you can bridge the carbon footprint divide. That savings, $2.25 million, doesn't include the savings on autonomy. It does not include the savings on being electric versus diesel. It doesn't include all of that. It's just saying, now you're going to get rid of this chemical. So first off, like we have to address the 9 billion pounds of petropesticides on our planet, and then we have to address the 100 million tons.
1: So glyphosate, is it a petropesticide?
0: Yeah, before jumping in, I just want to say that that realm right there, the educational realm is how we are going to be able to get rid of the kind of yesterday farming and get into a more regenerative farm. And that's where we talk about soils and the amount of carbon sequestration you can get into soils and having like a healthy soil microbiome and farm biology with all the biodiversity, how much better that is. So then when it's all happening, it's going to happen and it needs to happen because otherwise, again, we're
1: So as it stands, I interviewed Tom Newmark on this show. He was co-founder of The Carbon Underground. He has a farm in Costa Rica, which he used to supply New Chapter. He led New Chapter, which is a supplement company for many years. He used to supply all of their ginger, right? And he was using all these biodynamic growing conditions, had, you know, animals grazing underfoot, was really working to sequester the carbon and, and was operating from this perspective that they were doing better. They must be doing better. Than other organic farmers in the area. And then he tested the soil and he found that their carbon sequestration was actually not nearly as good as he thought it would. And that the carbon in the soil of the forest that was just budding his property was 10 times better. I might be remembering that number incorrectly, but it was so much better that he was like, I could obviously be doing better. There's something that's missing. Like there's another way to do this. And it had to do with tilling, right? It was hundred percent tilling. And so as we get to this new era where we're saying we can get tractors that have attachments that instead of having a traditional plow behind them, where they're just raking the soil um, from one end of the plot to the next, where they can kind of cut in through the grasses and plant seeds in that way instead. I mean, until I saw a video of this, I had a very hard time understanding what was meant by it, but I enjoyed this simple video called Kiss the Ground. I actually ended up interviewing John Rulac on my other podcast, Nutrition Without Compromise. He funded Kiss the Ground. So he was the executive producer behind it.
0: Those guys were at the launch. They're a great, great team. Yeah.
1: Oh, I can't believe I didn't get to meet them.
0: Yeah. Good people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps you can make another introduction. But at the same time, just kind of helping people visualize this because As Paul Hawkins said to me on this podcast over a year ago when I interviewed him, he said, earth does not want to be bare. And I think we all kind of intrinsically understand this when we have our gardens and there's these unwanted weeds who show up. Often they show up as an indicator that you might not have enough nitrogen in your soil. So now this nitrogen fixing weed shows up in your garden and seems to thrive. And then suddenly you see something else grow up. Well, we instinctually just want to remove the unwanted and only have the thing that we want. But this method of farming and of agriculture may actually be harming us more than helping us. So I guess what I'm getting to here is you've got this beautiful tractor. It's friendly It's doing its job with less resources. It doesn't emit a truckload of noxious chemicals. It could also be used. And more of this conventional farming way, right? A conventional farmer could utilize this tool and continue to till their soil and continue to spray noxious chemicals and continue to use glyphosate and not be part of that solution.
0: And a lot more money doing it. Yes. (laughs) They will be the 45% of farmers in America that are not profitable versus the people that get away from those chemicals don't have to buy those inputs. It's pretty crazy when you just say to a farmer, look, what if I could save you X dollars on these chemicals, they'd be like, please tell me how. It's all about education. Like on the regenerative piece, talking about your friend who has that farm that he was farming biodynamically and the forest had so much more carbon sequestration or organic matter in the soils. It's pretty like kind of interestingly logical when you like really think about it. So if you think about an acre of land and you take the topsoil, which is like basically six inches of soil, that weighs about 2 million pounds. So let's say you have a 2 million pounds of topsoil in an acre. And then if you go from half a percent of carbon which is normally like what conventional farms have is like a half a percent of organic matter or less and the way you get organic matter is basically you take dirt you cook that dirt to a point where all the organic matter burns off you weigh it before and after and that's your percent of organic matter in, in your field and so that's how he was measuring he was probably doing that with the forest and then he was doing that with his field and so when you till when you spray pesticides and like herbicides when you use fertilizers fertilizers um, like nitrogen oftentimes oxidize the organic matter in the soils and then when you break it up you're exposing it to air and all that which also oxidizes it and so you're losing your organic matter and when you look at it from a magnitude of like half a percent or less organic matter in the soils it's essentially dead and then when the rains come it sweeps that all away when you look at there's a couple things when you look at like for every percent of organic matter in your soil, that's how much rain it can take in a very quick order of time, right? So half percent, a half an inch comes, it's pulling soil away, it's not absorbing, it's washing it away, it's erosion. When you get into like really beautifully no-till farms with 3%, 4%, 5%, 6% organic matter in the soils, you're talking about if you have 5%, it's 100,000 pounds of organic matter you have in your soil versus at half a percent, it's 10,000 pounds. When you take a place like California, where you have 100 million acres of land total and 43 of those million acres are agricultural and if you were to say okay don't use these pesticides like herbicides don't use these fertilizers or or use them very sparingly don't till and we can go from a half a percent of organic matter to let's call it five percent organic matter you're talking about trillions and trillions of pounds like four trillion pounds of organic matter that you've created and that leads to nutrient-dense foods. That leads to healthier, more nutritious farms and and foods. It leads to greater carbon sequestration and real carbon sequestration, because you can get that very quickly, but then you till it and you release it. So now you're talking about a deeper sense. And then on top of that, if it rains two inches in a very quick order of time, you're not pulling your topsoil away and putting that into a river, which should be crystal clear, but instead it's murky brown. Now you're getting that water absorbed into your field, down to your roots. And so the whole regenerative movement is, and polyculture, so talking about multiple crops in a field versus just a monoculture, is so important. And this is where, you know, cover crops and and a no-till kind of program with a lot of biodiversity in the farm is important. There's a climate side to it. There's a overall farm health side to it. There's a nutrient density side to it. There's just all these things. And then there's a cost-saving side to it when you get rid of those chemicals, which is important. And this is what Monarch unlocks. This is why Monarch can become a major predator and the education of the right path forward. Whereas, like before, the education was sell more chemicals because I'm Monsanto or Dow or Syngenta. I'm going to sell more chemicals. Right? That's my goal. Today, that's what my objective is. For Monarch, it's like how can we save farmers? And saving farmers, one way to save farmers is by selling less chemicals. So it's the objective completely changes, and the whole entire shift allows for I think a world of what is best for Mother Nature versus what is best for the company. So that's the whole idea is how do we make what's best for planet Earth economically superior to anything else? And that's something that we've in our kind of founding documents with my co-founders and our team. And that's why we've been able to inspire such an incredible team to come from aerospace and on-road and all that to help address this kind of agricultural universe is this idea of how we're going to protect our planet going forward. And that's at the core of what we're doing. Whereas at the core of like, I think the last 50 years of farming has been really about how do we sell more chemicals? How do we kind of squeeze more out of our land without looking at what the actual effect was what's the actual cost not the cost but the actual cost to mother to mother earth right now and so i think there's an exciting future on all that but the carbon piece what you talked about and it's so true i love paul hawkins yeah cover we have to have <laughs> covered soil which is so true
1: yeah it doesn't like to be naked as it stands i think you're bringing together a couple of subjects that are i think critically important to both the success of the movement and how monarch lays into that Because as you look at this tractor, it's but one piece in a much bigger puzzle that is farming and that is autonomous vehicles and that is a technological approach to climate challenges, technological approach solution. So I know that the applications of this technology could go far beyond just farming. And I don't want to say just farming, but could be applied in other arenas. I also understand that what we're getting at here when we talk about what you're doing from this educational perspective, that your company also now has a platform to help educate these farmers on shifting away from some of these petrochemically based fertilizers. And I mean, what are they exactly? I don't fully understand what glyphosate is. Is it a petrochemical? What does it come from? <laughs>
0: it's based off of basically dehydrated fossil fuel molecules and that's what most of like i'd say of the nine billion pounds of pesticides sprayed on mother earth each year that it's like 98 99 percent of those are petrol based before world war one and world war ii i think the first time that we were able to fix nitrogen was like in the 1860s out of germany they were the first ones to fix nitrogen but it was so energy intensive to create nitrogen that it didn't make sense for farmers to be able to use it. It didn't make sense for industry to use it, but then World War I happened and World War II, and then potassium nitrate bomb came along and all of a sudden it was like huge factories were spun up to fix nitrogen to create these bombs for war. After the war, they were all there and all of a sudden it was like, well, now what can we do with this? And that was when, because all of a sudden it was commoditized, it became economically available and kind of far more frugal, if you will, to be able to buy that as a farmer and use it in lieu of having to you know, turn your crops to have nitrogen fixers and depleters, et cetera. Before the only way you could fix nitrogen in the soils was literally through the root, through photosynthesis, pulling nitrogen out of the air, fixing it in the soils. There was nitrogen fixers. And then there's nitrogen depleters. And so after this, it was like, well, we don't need to turn crops anymore. We don't need to rotate crops. We can just plant what we we need to plant, what we want to plant and we can augment it with chemistry. And so this is where the green revolution began, which is called the green revolution, which just allowed for farmers to really industrialize farming and become more monoculture-esque and focus on, okay, I'm gonna do corn. I don't need to rotate and have legumes and to fix the soy and et cetera. I can just literally crank through and, this began the era that, that we're talking about now. And with that, so much research was billions and billions of dollars were invested into agri-technologies, like in the chemical sector. And that's where things like spun out different, very dangerous herbicides. And eventually they got to glyphosate, which theory was a very clean herbicide compared to a lot of the other ones. But my stance is that all herbicides are bad. I'm not this person who says Roundup is the only bad one, glyphosate's the only bad one. They're all bad because essentially, first off, they're just chemically mowing. And I've gotten in trouble for saying that this means that we're being lazy as farmers. And it's not means that we're being lazy. We're just being, it's really a terrible thing to spray into the ground and kill the grasses. So there's a hundred percent reduction to get rid of it.
1: Well, it's symptom, it's symptom treatment. It's the same approach that pharma has. It's like, okay, well just go take a bunch of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Who cares what it does to your guts or your heart health or anything else long-term? You just want to kill the pain. It's the same thing. You're treating the symptom as opposed to the cause. And you're not working with nature at all.
0: Isn't it kind of funny that pharmaceutical companies is also one of the largest chemical
1: companies? Isn't that Dow?
0: No, that's Bayer.
1: Bayer. Okay, right. Bayer.
0: Yeah. Bayer is big as well. I mean, Dow is big as well. They're all quite large. But when you think about like, okay, we're going to do this in our food systems. And then don't worry, we have got pharmaceuticals to deal with the health impact that comes from. It feels like a very dark film and it really kind of, it is. But the good news is I think that we're smarter than that as human species and that um, we've also, now we've gone as far as we can go and we've learned, just think about this, since 1974, since the introduction of Roundup glyphosate, as the flag in the ground for really when chemicals got sprayed directly into our food ecosystem, right? Really not until like 98, 99 with like the GMO resistant corn and soy that could take a herbicide hit without killing that plant. But let's put that 74 as the flag in the ground. The monarch population of butterflies, which are these beautiful monarchs that migrate from basically the north down through Mexico and back up again, their population has declined by 99%. They're now on the brink of extinction. It's kind of beautiful. They're having a little bit of a comeback these last two years, but in like 2020, their population overwintering count, which is held by the Xerxes Society, was down to 1,910 individuals. They were on the brink of extinction. And Now they're on the endangered species list. This is like as of months ago.
1: I mean, I just got the chills. I'm here in Santa Cruz area. I lived in Pacific Grove for a while. The emblem for Pacific Grove is a monarch butterfly. We go to Natural Bridges State Park here, and that's one of the spaces that the monarch butterfly comes through. But there are some things that I think are positively impacting their health. It's a drop in the usage of some of these chemicals. It's also the fact that people are getting wise to creating even what is called the pollinator corridor and working to plant bushes that they thrive consuming along the way on their journey through their migratory path. That's just so astonishing.
0: This is, and they're incredibly resilient. As an invertebrate, they are strong flyers. I mean, think about the thousands of miles that they fly. They're very, very, just, they have this ability to survive. Yet with the climate and the environment and everything that we're going through, they've declined. And when you look at, this is a crazy number that is a crazy study that just came out in europe they have shown that 70 percent of the insect biomass has disappeared since the year 2000 and 50 percent of the bird population with it this, this does not include aqua invertebrates and fish just um, and so as an indicator species monarchs they indicate the health of the ecosystem when you look at that study it's like okay not just the monarchs are in decline everything is in decline and then you look at the full circle of life what happens with that with the birds and with effects of, what if the birds disappear and so there's this really crazy, like this Rada from Monarch always says. She says it's a, a a insect apocalypse.
1: It's a great extinction. We're in the midst of possibly the largest extinction that we've ever seen.
0: It's unbelievable. But if we can protect our planet's indicator species, like monarchs, like the polar bears of the north and the wolves of Yellowstone, and we can protect whole ecosystems underneath it, and then eventually, and we can protect ourselves as humanity. But it, the way that it is right now is it's terrifying and this is why i'm so optimistic is because now the platform that we've built at monarch does allow for farmers to make more money while getting away from these chemicals and it does allow for us to have a platform where regenerative farming can become the future and so it's not just getting away from fossil fuel farming and into renewable it's getting away from kind of the like till farming and into regenerative
1: Till farming and monocrop farming. I think many people of my age, I'm in my mid 40s, and I just grew up understanding crop rotation was the norm of conventional farming. This is what everybody was doing, right? However, I live in Santa Cruz County and I drive the coast of Monterey, I don't know how many times over the course of the last 20 something years. And it's like, this is where artichokes are always grown. This is where strawberries are always grown. This is where raspberries are always grown. It really is a monocropped world here. Like, I have not seen really any farms aside from a few small CSA leaning farms that are actually integrating multiple crops into a small area and that are actually using no till operations and things along these lines. So it feels like in a community like Santa Cruz, where people want to eat organic, where we understand or at least are starting to understand regenerative farming, like we'd be further along down the line than we are. And so I, applaud your position here to like really work to push this because I think we need to tap it a lot faster than it is.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that when you look at these kind of monoculture farms, if they can just take basically, first off, they get rid of the chemicals. This is very important. But then after all the chemicals are gone, if you can take just 25% of that kind of space and have that be a pollinator garden, so like all sorts of biodiversity, you can actually continue on in this kind of monoculture way where the farm has a single singular focus. And by the way, I mean, if you get away from fossil fuel farming, you can get into renewable energy farming too. So now you're farming, let's call it strawberries. You have your 25% of the farm is a kind of a pollinator friendly garden or land dedicated towards being for pollinators and biodiversity. And then you get away from fossil fuel and all that you can create a farm that can be kind of singular in its focus but still not be beneficial to the planet it's the same with when you look at well i really believe in polyculture so i do believe in multiple things in farming whether it's livestock i think can be uh, carbon positive and not negative i think that there's all sorts of things that can be really really done we just have to rethink it and it's all been rethought there's roadmaps for any farming sector that you can follow that will be pollinator friendly it'll be friendly to the soils and the water table it'll be so right now it's really about education and then it's about speed and scale because it's a lot of land when i say 50 percent of the inhabitable land it's like half of india half of europe half of america it's a significant amount of land that is dedicated towards agriculture so we've got to move quick and i was happy to see that it was talked at cop 27 this year a bit versus it's always been about like kind of alluded to like industry and transportation and it's like hey agriculture is what we eat every single night when we go home for dinner. It's what we have at lunch. It all comes from farming and it all has a carbon footprint. And so this is as big, if not, well, they're all big. There's not one you can't choose right now in the future. We have to progress in all of these segments.
1: Yep. And to your point too, this type of food that's grown this way tastes better. And perhaps not to your point, but to the point of Alice Waters, who was the restaurateur of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, she came to your event. Is It's her baby. I thought she'd retired, so.
0: (laughs) Oh, no way. That girl, she's just getting started. You try to get on her schedule. Let me tell you, Alice Waters is one of my heroes. The way that she's able to connect food to the farm, I mean, she basically wrote the farm to table movement. She's been talking about regenerative farming, she told me, for 60 years now. And now she's working with the government to try to make sure that every family, every child in school. Can have an organic meal that they can have a healthy, nutritious meal, and the perfect nutrition, like we've all bitten into an apple, and you're kind of like there's no flavor versus biting that's the soils. and she's an incredible human,
1: yeah, I think she used the example of just having be finding a carrot that tasted so much better when she was in France and then wanting to bring that reality back here. So I just think that's phenomenal. I think the work that you're doing is really important. I did want to ask you one more question. That is perhaps fairly deep. I don't know if you have time for that. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Because I realize we're at 1202. No, it's great. Okay. So you obviously have high hopes and a big dream when it comes to monarch tractors and what you can do as it is within the space of the wine industry and beyond. I heard Constellation Brands, president of Wine and Spirits Division, tell the story. And that was Robert Hansen, I believe his name is, right? He told the story of how you came to him with this concept early on. I know that they are the owner now of Robert Mondavi Wines, your family's wines, as well as, of course, many other brands, including plenty of spirits and beers that I didn't even know they were involved in. I had to do a little scrub of their website. I was like, oh, they have that brand?
0: They're the largest drinks company in the world. Yeah, they're huge.
1: Wow, so he shared this story. So I wanted to hear from your perspective, How you got this from Pipe Dream through to that first committed, at least indicator, and then to today, where you have these incredible founders, you have the facility in Livermore, and you've got your first fully autonomous electric vehicles, tractors. It's been a journey.
0: It's been four years now. I'm a farmer and a winemaker first. That's where my heart and soul is and when i saw what was happening to our planet and not just here in Napa and sonoma but when i travel abroad to wine regions and i knew that if we could just create awareness that about like these dangerous chemicals and what was happening that for sure we migrate away that wasn't the case that was how i got the introduction of a lifetime to my co-founders so mark praveen and zachary are properly brilliant 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 and when you look at what we've been able to create in four years time it's a real testament to them because these are three of the smartest guys they could have gone off into aerospace they were in aerospace and on road they were doing all sorts of technology challenges and just incredible things and they said this is where we want to spend our time and i think the reason why they saw it is that they saw it not just for vineyards but they saw it for the whole entire food ecosystem for fruits and vegetables for orchards etc they said this is a big huge opportunity it's a sleeping giant that needs to be awoken because if we don't focus on this sector then it's kind of all for nothing. We have to, it's so important. And so because of the team, we've been able to create this incredible technology that's gonna revolutionize our food ecosystem, making farmers more independent and making them more profitable. And kind of coming full circle to being able to see consolation by the first founder Series tractors. And it's been amazing. We knew that in order for our company to be successful, that it had to have massive impact. And in order to have massive impact, we have to have the big, large global companies that are at scale, be able to adopt the technology. Meanwhile, the small farms and all that as well. Within the Foundry Series, it goes to all sorts of wonderful small family farms, as well as to some really large, 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 large corporations that can make major impact. And so it was, for me, that day was massive. And to hear Robert talk about that and the vision for Constellation, because these are the companies leading our planet's charge. Like if I decide to go, and I am, Rain, the winery my brother and I make, is regeneratively, we're, we're a permaculture first, and then we use biodynamics and regenerative farming practices. We're a no-till farm and well beyond organic, but we're 18 and a half acres. So the impact that we can do is nominal. Not to say that, and all the small family farms are the ones making the small little adjustable kind of progress forward into, beautiful farming landscape but when you look at the consolidation of small medium and large farms what's happening today on our planet around the world not just in the united states but in europe and in asia in order for that to happen the large corporations have to step up and so that was one of the reasons why i was so particularly happy that constellation brands they've come out and saying this is something that we're dedicated to and whatnot and so it was an exciting day and it's been a journey
1: well granted you had the connection because they had procured Robert Mondavi Wines, right?
0: That I would not just want to say that it, it's not been exactly like the most peachy connection as well. So like <laughs> my family didn't want to sell Robert Mondavi Winery. It was kind of an unfortunate series of events. When we sold, there was the companies that were bidding for it because we were publicly traded. And so after Sir oxley all public companies are essentially perpetually for sale. If you can write a big enough check, that will get the shareholder votes to vote over for you. So because of SOX compliancy, you're perpetually for sale essentially. And so it was not a great beginning. The good news is that when we began Monarch and we began this talk, all the large corporations wanted to have a seat at the table and talk about this because this is something that they all care about. And Constellation, it was not a correlation to my family's history with them, but it certainly is a very touching element that they also, the first tractors are going to be on parcels of land that my family was once upon a time involved with.
1: That can feel very full circle there. I mean, the reality is your name comes with a certain amount of weight in that industry because of that history. And the fact that you were able to get a conglomerate as large as Constellation, I mean, they have Cook's Champagne, I believe, is among them, right? Like this is a sparkling wine that you'll find on every shelf across the world. If if you look at the other brands that they manage, I mean, it's huge. And so the fact that you could make this introduction happen and that they'd come in so early. I mean, it could mean huge things beyond the scope of the wineries that they manage that might even be within California to other countries around the globe and really just kind of be that tipping point in a way for a movement to gain more traction and for us to build more change. And I say us because as a consumer of wine, I'm part of that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it affects us all. And I think that's where agriculture, I mean, that's why I say farmers are the most important people on the planet. And it's been incredible. And it's a testament to my co founders and their ability to just create incredible technology and our team. And we're now close to 300 people. So we have an incredibly brilliant team to create something that can win over the eyes of some of the largest, most sophisticated corporate companies on the planet. So it's been a good journey. And I'm also equally as proud that the small family farms that are near and dear to all of us to making kind of our communities what they are, have also signed up. So I think that in order for us to be successful as a planet and to be able to thrive forward, that we need to all adopt. And I think the hardest ones to get to adopt can be equally the small family farms and equally the large corporations. So it's been a journey, though, I have to say, that none of this happens without the incredible ingenuity and brilliance of the team that we have. It's an incredible special team.
1: So you're uniquely here in Northern California, where there's a lot of people working in the electric vehicle space. But the first that I know of in the tractor space, you have Tesla, you have Monarch, you have Joby Aviation here in Santa Cruz County. My husband actually works for them. So he's in the EVTOL, Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing. Like That's what that stands for. So I imagine that you have built interesting connections to each of these companies. Are there any collaborations that you're at liberty to share? Uh, We have a bunch of
0: collaborations on the (laughs) implement side so everything from mowers and under the vine weeders and all the implements that we have and kind of our agricultural like ecosystem right now that we use every day on farms so we have collaborations with several implement companies to not just connect up to their implements they have today but build more efficient and intelligent implements for farms of tomorrow this is something that monarch is unlocking and enabling of course it hooks up to all our implements today but now we can do going forward on the app side on the future of energy grid technology so say a farmer comes to us and says hey i really like what you guys are doing i now want to get into renewable energy so we have partners with solar companies with a new really cool company called Aeromine, which is this basic it's like a wind turbine but it's about 10 feet by 10 feet and instead of having a big kind of blade it's like a dyson hair blower it's like a hollow thing that takes wind and creates like five kilowatt hours of energy just off of a 10 by 10 foot little uh, square and so we have the renewable connections on on all of our partnerships and then we have the inverter partnerships where basically we can marry that renewable energy to an inverter that can marry to our tractor which can store that energy and then so imagine in the daytime energy prices are quite low because there's all the sun and everything's high. when the sun sets energy prices spike because now there's no solar available develop- so if you have 10 monarch tractors you have a megawatt that's essentially a microgrid You connect that up to the inverter, boom, you can sell that energy back to the grid and farmers can profit on that. And then when you look at the landscape of like, I think it's like 3.2 trillion terawatts of energy that the United States uses each year. And when you look at half of the United States is farmland or 50% of the inhabitable land is farmland, all of a sudden, like farmers can get into renewable energy. We don't need to buy oil anymore. Farmers are rich with energy. So there's another crop.
1: Yeah, you could place a turbine or what you mentioned is being like kind of a, a wind tunnel almost. I'm curious. I've seen some that look like tulips and that turn and take up a smaller footprint, so to speak. But there's so many different ways that you could fuel your farm that way. That's really cool. But
0: the partnerships are like all in those sectors. So like, yes, on today's and yesterday's sector, but then the new sector of like renewable energy and then the ability to be a part of the grid solution on the edge. So there's like all of these things that we have partnerships with to ensure that when farmers say, okay, I'm ready to go. And then we also have an impact department at Monarch and the impact department works with the government to try to help set up subsidies so that as these farmers invest into the future and divest from yesterday's technologies like diesel tanks and diesel tractor equipment, and that they can now have subsidies to help them invest into solar and invest into other renewables and invest into the infrastructure that connects it all. And then of course, invest into the tractor to monarch tractor. So these are partnerships that I think are important because for farms, these are legacy investments. And to be able to shift them into a profitable future It sometimes needs a little bit of nudge and when you look at our dollar for dollar metric if you look at like a subsidy for a car for an electric car versus a diesel car or whatever a fossil fuel car one tractor one tractor the size of monarch is like turning on 14 cars so taxpayer dollars go so much further in subsidizing tractors to be replaced by electric tractors than it does in cars not to say that this is a competition between electric on-road vehicles and tractors it's all the same we have to get away from the fossil fuel era but There is that kind of bridge. So, there's a lot to be said on these government partnerships and what I I don't think you call it, but just the ability to work with them to make sure that their budgets that are going towards clean tech are being also addressed in agriculture.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just so glad you brought that up because this is the intersection that we actually talked about also with Jen Smallback on the show. He started a corporate benefit corporation or a benefit corporation called new impact.care, and specifically spoke of what he's calling a tri-sector way of growing companies, which involves the public sector, meaning government, social, and then of course, business as well. So kind of bringing them all together to create solutions that will ultimately help us all. Love that. I appreciate that you're pulling that lever as well. No, I'd just love for you to leave our audience with a closing thought, or if there's a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, you could ask and answer it.
0: Awesome. So hey, thank you, Karina, for having me. I think that my closing thought would be that the more that I've dug into this world of like what's happening to our planet, the more I think harder was for me to sleep at night because it just seemed kind of hopeless when you look at what's happening to our oceans and to our forests and to our meadows and to our planet, just the biodiversity. And I think that the more that I've met incredibly brilliant people that like our team at Monarch, that I am so optimistic about the future because I know that there's incredibly brilliant people working towards solutions that are going to actually create change and help get us there. And my closing thought and just for other people that are interested in technology or into helping change our planet is that the thing that i came to the conclusion that i came to when i was at my most depressed moment when the monarch challenge was going to fail because of the economic divide and carbon footprint divide and then the realization was that in order for us to be successful as a human species on this planet that we have to make what is best for our planet economically superior to anything else and so that's where i think when we start to see challenges out there for a lot of the listeners and that people that are interested that if we can create the mind space to go there to how we can make our planet More profitable by being best for our planet, type of kind of that mindset is where I think the future is. And I think that that's also where a lot of these technologies have led us, like with Monarch making regenerative and clean farming economically superior to conventional farming. So I think there's a really bright future, even though when we peel back the layers on what's happened to our planet, it's terrifying. There's the solutions out there. And so I'm really optimistic about it. And I'm really grateful that you are talking about this on your podcast and really happy to be here with you. So thanks for sharing this time.
1: I could keep you for the rest of your day, but I think we both have other things that we need to do with our daily life too. (laughs) You have me actually thinking of one definition of regenerative that Paul Hawken has put out there. He wrote the book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation.
0: It's a great book.
1: So he defined regeneration as putting earth at the center of every action we take and every decision we make. Yeah. I love that it rhymed. Yeah. <laughs> I've been able to remember it for all of that time, but I really do think that that's something you're speaking to. It's like, if we define how we build as we go forward, as we build back better, that this is how we do it.
0: Exactly. Exactly again, Paul's a brilliant human being and someone who I really, really look up to. And I've, met, I've been able to meet him. He's in it just such, and I've read his books. An amazing guy.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you'll come back at some point in the future too.
0: Absolutely. It would be an absolute pleasure. And thank you for telling the story and all of the incredible stories that you're telling. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Karina. Thank you, Carlo. To learn more about Carlo Mandavi. And Monarch Tractors, visit our show notes for direct links. You can always visit caremorebebetter.com for our expanded show notes, complete transcripts, and resources that you won't find anywhere else. I'm going to include also snips from my review of their press event just a few weeks back. So you'll get to see the tractor in the rain driving itself from my purview as I recorded it on my cell phone. While you're visiting our site, I would love to hear from you. You can leave me a voicemail on the site by clicking the microphone icon in the bottom right hand corner. Tell me what you loved about this show, what you would have liked to know more of. If there's a particular topic that you'd like me to dive into or a guest that you think I should feature, I want to hear from you. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to the show. You can write us a review on Spotify, which is just as simple as clicking those five stars, Apple Podcasts, including a written review or wherever you listen, each of those actions helps us get in front of more people so that we can make a bigger difference each day. It's its own kind of appreciative form of payment that doesn't require any dollars and no sense. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even change the way we farm and regenerate earth. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.